Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. I am joined today. Um, this is this is Friday, August fifth. Um, it is twenty twenty two, and I'm joined today um, by none other than a guest we've had on the podcast before, Gabby Richmond. Gabby, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, Trisha. Thanks for having me back again. Do another flipperoo. Absolutely. This is a absolutely. This is our this is our third flipperoo. Well, we did one flipperoo and then we turned it into two episodes. So this, this will be a flipperoo. This is going to be really fun. Again, I have. You know, Gabby has not told me the questions she's going to ask, so we're we're shooting from the hip. Um, but there's so much going on in the market. It's it's. Um, I, Gabby is um she's Australian, so I kind of like this this pulling in this uh, Australian vibe because I know she's going to ask questions about China, which is great. Um, so she even if she's not, she has to now. Um, so but it's really good. She's a, she's a good. <laughs> She's a good commentator, and this will be fun. Uh, but before we dive into this, and it is it is Friday morning. Um, this is episode 55, I believe. We may have some fudging on the numbers of which episode number this is. Um, but WTI is 90.02, and the reason that's relevant is because yesterday, um, yesterday and Thursday, we saw WTI actually drop, or we saw that in the 80s. And if you were looking at futures, you saw 8.7, 8.6. Like, we were seeing um, oil prices well in the 80s. And I've been t- talking to people at ADL oil prices for a while. Didn't quite expect we'd see it, you know, as soon as we did. But now we're hanging out on this 90 level. Brent is 95.68. Henry Hub is sitting at 8.15. Dutch TTF dollars per MMBTU for nat- so natural gas in Europe is right about 59, the 59 to 60 mark, um, which is just it's still. I mean, that's ridiculously high. And our 30-year mortgage is sitting out around 5.16 from what I'm seeing on CNBC. And um, I added to tell people like that, if you're looking at the 10-year yield, it's really that 30-year mortgage when we saw, you know, 6%. That is a, I know you're going to ask some questions on the market and recession and what's going on. And this mortgage rate and actually the 10-year yield, which is about 285 right now, has a lot to do with that. And it's how people are interpreting and how, you know, bonds are working and everything. So um, without further ado, Gabby, it is so great to have you. And I really appreciate you, you know, doing this on a Friday morning. And I'm pumped for this. So let's go. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's funny that when you talk about Dutch TTF, I was just saying something from Australia that Australian energy prices is something like $323 a kilowatt or a megawatt hour. I have to double check what the actual, oh, and wow. I just thought that was yeah. absolutely insane. Even if you just counted about a third accounting for currency, everything's and on the uh, fritz. And Australia has implement or is trying to implement extremely aggressive uh, climate agendas um, with your new, yes, especially with, with new the government new government. government. Yep. And Very some green. of them that, that, that they can't even roll back. I believe it was the laws that they're trying to implement or that they can they can increase it so they can make it more aggressive, but they can't decrease it. So the stringency, I assume, is going to, will probably impact electricity prices. Um, and I'm guessing you guys are feeling it just like everyone else, um, especially in Europe, on that tightness. Um, but Australia does have natural gas supply and coal. So it's yes. uh, security supply won't be quite as scary if people are smart enough. If, to if we really need it, winter. we could always step into it. Yes. So I'm going to yeah. start with the payroll report that came out this morning. And just for context, it came out at about 528,000. Expectations were about 250. Previous mm-hmm. month, I want to say was around 360, but correct me if I'm wrong. I can't remember the exact number. And the markets responded just wacky. I think as they have been, I try to understand why the market is doing what it's doing and I can't get my head around it. You know, Brent 
Brent crude went up, WTI went up, and that was the exact opposite reaction that I thought it would have because we know that this means the Fed's going to have to hike interest rates again, 75 basis points. Do you have any commentary on why this is reacting the way that it is? Are you as shocked as I am? If you want to add some any any commentary you have on the payroll report, I was surprised based on other economic, economic indicators that that came out as strong as it did. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there's a, a few things with that, and that's a great question because uh, it allows us to talk about sort of, you know, what is the market doing? And I think, um, and sort of in- interpreting oil prices, interpreting recession, and I think that the stock market, as in many times, and this is one of them, and it like, has been, is everyone, the stock market, and commentators on it want to, they want to control the market, and they can't. And so when people say, like, a jobs report like this, um, and I haven't seen the exact numbers, but it was positive, it was strong, and market is it is quacky you're hearing the commentators saying oh is this good or is this bad and i would say the reason it, it, it responded the way it did is because and oil prices would go up is that that strong jobs report means that the economy is like jobs lag so they're the they're the last shoe to drop in a recession and that's why the market and, and commentators people are very very off is that when you have high inflation then you raise rates and about two years later that's when you peak unemployment so we are way behind the curve we're actually and the actual consumer on in the average business is, is still just now really feeling the brunt of heavy inflation of this 9.1% inflation. You know, it's, it's ratcheted up, we're feeling it now, and it's going to get worse. And so then the, then we'll have you know higher rates, we're going to have job losses. And so the market interpreted this was probably a little wacky because some folks are saying, oh, good, the, we're not in, we're not going to imminent recession because the job market is good. The flip side of that is the job market is too good and we have really high inflation and therefore the Fed is going to continue with their aggressive rate hike. So that pullback you saw a couple last couple of weeks with all this you know, very positive commentary in the market and, and the bank stocks going up and all these stocks going up was because people in the market wanted to interpret that we that the Fed they were basically baking in a Fed pivot that the Fed would raise heights too high we would go into recession and then the Fed would have to be accommodative and start you know policy easing and so that's where there's a constant tug of war on on stocks right now is whether or not the Fed's going to raise rates and when they're going to be accommodative and. I think they've got it completely wrong. I think they have not. We are going to have a recession. I mean, it's fascinating to me that, I don't know if you saw the Bank of England came out and said yesterday they, they raised rates. And um, the head of the Bank of England actually came out and with, you can just imagine during this. The Bank of England came out and said, we are going into recession. It's going to be a long one. It's going to be over a year. And we believe that we'll see, they're, they're, going, they're banking on 13.3% um, inflation is what they see it looking at. And I mean that's high, and it's that's really it's really scary. And they're they're increasing their electricity costs, um, their price cap for the UK electricity costs. I believe Ofgem has come out and said this was, you know, a few weeks ago. Ofgem came out and said, you know, this UK regulator for utilities said that they were gonna the cap was gonna be 500 pounds, and it's like you already they already have quadrupled electricity prices. So the market is not. I mean, and I don't think our stock market is actually doing a very good job interpreting all that. If that's happening in the UK, yes, yeah. we have access to energy here. But 815 net gas is extremely high, and it's it, it's crushing. Um, yeah, the little relief on oil prices, and that's another thing of why oil prices were, you know, so hammered was because people. And we can get into that later of, of you know, the interpretation of, of of we're going to recession, therefore oil prices are getting hammered. Now with oil prices, uh, you know, coming up a little bit, I do think that's a bit from the jobs report of people saying, okay, well, it's not as bad as we think. People aren't losing their jobs, you know, just yet. Um, and so that's a big deal. And there's a lot of controversy on 
the, that jobs data because I think depending on if you're hawkish or dovish within the Fed, Fed pivot. I think that what's happening within within the Fed and within the market is there is a bit of this uh, confusion, and and I think and certainly we see it from I think uh, more of the left. We see Democrats and a lot of folks who really want the Fed to be focusing on employment because um, obviously this votes, job losses, you know, this is serious. So if they're focused on employment and they're still and they they're accommodative and the dovish, they're going to spend more money and 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 people like this. They like money. And the problem is that's sort of that's I mean, we're near hearing now more and more. That's really people have come to the conclusion that that's what's got us here in the first place. And so if you're listening to BBC or listen to other analysis on US inflation and the reason why it's different is and they always they they lump you know, Trump into saying that spending, we did have massive fiscal, we had a lot of fit stimulus, and then we had an administration who spent a lot of money, a lot of money on, on you know, the, the Great Recovery Act and all these things. And so it has caused, it has, now we're feeling that that inflation as it's lagged a bit. So there's a lot going on in the market that's, that has nothing to do with, um, you know, when you pull yourself out politically, you know, these are just repercussions of it. And certainly fiscal, and I, can, I mean, you know, fiscal monetary stimulus uh, helped put the, the U.S. into this situation. Yeah, well, and consumers are hurting the worst. And you t- you touched on this one podcast ago, two podcasts ago, with your guest, that companies are just passing on the costs to consumers from an inflation perspective. And so we see earnings that for a lot of companies, I was kind of surprised at how well they did. I mean, we knew Liberty Energy, Chevron, we knew that the oil and gas companies and adjacent companies would do well, but I was surprised by other companies and their earnings. Do you think that that's due to passing on the cost to consumers? Uh, yeah, and I think that's the also it's, it's the part of that look the sort of question like does it are we in a recession? Does it look like we're in a recession? And I think there are some so there has been a lot of disappointing earnings from the standpoint of tech. So when you're saying Snapchat and you're saying and we you know we talked last time you, we were doing the flipperoo with you we talked about Netflix and I think that thesis we were having has really come home to roost. I mean you can lit- you can talk to people about. Um, <clears throat> stuff that they're cutting back on, and you know, subscriptions is one of them, um, and that's what we really hear in the Walmart earnings call. So I think there's a discount. You know, there's there's chuck buckets that are doing well, folks that can pass along that inflation, folks that are pretty resilient. So the certain tech talk, the reason tech stocks have have buoyed and bounced up was that this sort of thesis that hey, we are going to recession, which means the Fed's going to have to cool on raising rates, and therefore that's good for tech. Um, so that's why this jobs report should be pretty wacky with the market is because that means the Fed is going to really you know be leaning into the, they're not going to have an excuse. They're going to have to raise rates, and quite frankly. People are ridiculous. The market's ridiculous. They have to raise rates. You cannot have this uncontrollable inflation. Like it will cause problems down the road if you don't control it now. And and that's what people. The reason people are having such a hard time understanding this is because it hasn't happened in so long, um, and to this extent. So we have really not seen this since since pre seventies. And so most people just don't understand it and don't have the tools to deal with it. But those earnings from you know obviously oil and gas, we saw very strong you know strong comp- really strong earnings because the price um, very good refining margins. So if you had exposure Chevron X on the refining side that was fantastic and then you see the little bit bounce in some tech but the companies like like the Netflixes like the Snapchats obviously anything if it's a Peloton or if, it, if it's something that was great during COVID it's not really I mean DocuSign these companies they're just not as they're not as needed now and they never should have had the valuations they had before and by the way the stock market is still extremely overvalued so when you look at the PE ratios price equity ratios on most of these companies they're not even they're not a buy territory so we are we have a lot of room to go to move the stock market down if that's people's gauge of recession you know 2008 it took it took Lehman Brothers collapsing and and then that's when we saw that that market really declining and we're we're eventually going to see that we're just not quite there and I I think the other you know 
Walmart and Target and and Walmart has not they haven't put out the the call to listen to but you can read it it was extremely damning um and that call was from to that was the end of July um and that was really a really really damning call to the market and that I mean you, you saw the market come down considerably yeah. but that was because the bottom 40% or of and and many other people too in that are purchasing from Walmart but those people are really really hurting and they're only buying food and fuel and they're margins on food are much thinner and that really got back into those the food inflation part which is just which is just crushing so walmart said specifically we have not experienced you know inflation to these extent like the sustained inflation especially in food and that's a thinner margin business so when everybody's just buying food you know that's going to impact their bottom line and they're buying food and fuel and, and that's that's something really i think prevalent that people have to realize if that food inflation continues which if you look at food at home that's still if you're breaking down you know the Bureau of Statistics data, you can see that you know food at home is much higher than and then food going out, um, and that means that companies like a McDonald's and companies like that are in this lower price category will probably perform pretty well um, because they're they're going to be a little bit more resilient in it, and that's that's when. If you're looking at companies like that are going to perform well, historically a Walmart should perform well in a recession. It means that people are are not appreciating this as a unique style recession. This is a unique style economy. We're at a just an unprecedented level for the volatility and the uniqueness of what's going on in the in the globe uh, to get us to this point. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's <clears throat> a, a lot going on there that has to be unpacked to understood to be understood. Couldn't agree with you more. And as we touch on earnings. I was surprised at the commentary from a lot of oil and gas CEOs around their forecasts for a WTI and where they think price is going to go and that they seem pretty confident that there's price stability where we're at. And that shocked me. I don't, I don't know a ton, but I do know enough to say that if we do hit a recession, demand destruction will be significant enough that the supply side is kind of a mute point. I would love to get your thoughts on that and if you would agree with these CEOs in terms of how confident they are that they can operate with this continued price environment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been, I mean, as you know, we've talked about this offline and also, you know, on our previous podcast and just over, over time is that I think they're, you know, the, the, largely for the most part, most oil and gas company CEOs have been exceptionally bullish on oil prices. And I mean, obviously, they're, they're bullish on gas prices now for good reason. But they've been bullish on oil prices, and they've sort of had a, a simple thesis that, that they've talked about demand a lot. And I think that's probably where the thesis to me has been breaking down or, or not appreciating that this is such a unique environment to get you to these high oil prices. And um, I think it was, you know, I heard Devin, I haven't had a chance to, they just posted some of these, so I haven't had a chance to listen to all of them. But I mean, actually, Chris Wright talked about it at the opening of the Liberty Energy call, you know, that he did talk about the risk, obviously, being recession. You know, if you have a slowdown, I mean, basic basic stuff. If you have a if you have a mild slowdown, you're going to see a mild impact to demand. If it's really big, obviously, a bigger impact. So that is a risk. I'd say overwhelmingly, though, most um, most folks feel comfortable because prices are high. And it is, I I would say, it's a bit of a false sense of security. The fact that we saw eight, eight you know, eighty seven dollar oil yesterday, um, that should tell you that we have a, a false sense of security and that that demand demand worries now. Traders also move the market like crazy. I mean, we've There's I've no talked in previous podcasts. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, that, that, that there can be a $5 swing in any day that's just trading moves. Now you have so much algorithmic trading, you have less humans actually doing the trading. So you can see big swings that are not necessarily rep representative of supply and demand. And that's, that's just it, it, the reality of, of, of trading this commodity. But behind, behind that, it usually 
reflects reality. And I think that, you know, initially people were disappointed in obviously the Saudi output that the OPEC meeting of saying we're going to increase by 100,000 barrels a day. And I think there's something to be said about that. One, it's that they've increased their 29, I mean, they're almost at 30 million barrels a day, OPEC is. So if they were to add a bunch of supply into a market that they're not going to admit, hey, we're going to reset, the world's going to recession, but there's not, there's no one that can look around this and say, this is sustainable. You know, what's going on in Europe and elsewhere. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, been very clear with folks. I really think that Europe, the European energy crisis, is is what's going to pull, you know, the the globe into recession. It's going to be the first sort of starting point. So I think that folks within OPEC, you know, are at least seeing that, and so they're not going to add a bunch of barrels. But the market reacted bullishly to that, saying, "Oh, they're not going to add it." And then obviously the next day, you know, yesterday we saw this, the the pullback in, in oil prices because of worries of recession. So it's all sort of this this interpretation. But I think those the cover that that CEOs and, and industry leaders have on this bullish thesis, uh, they don't have that cover anymore. It, it, this is a uniquely complex market. And I, that's why I really think it's super, super important for every CEO in and outside the oil and gas industry to be doing, you know, to really be thinking outside the box, to be pushing themselves on their thesis and really have a, you know, the risk scenarios looked at. And what does it mean for, you know, if prices drop to 80 tomorrow? What does it mean for 75? And for many of these companies, I think, they're in great a great position. I mean, I think you, you've heard, yeah. at least in Devon and some others, equating oil prices and inflation and how much inflation they have to see for, for, the, for oil prices. And they're in a good spot. The, the trick is, you know, if you're going to grow production, you know, can you actually get more rigs? And I do think that some of the publics were because they were late to the party of adding, you know, activity back um, and and so focused on these shareholder returns and just limiting this production growth. That, yeah, they can't they can't grab a bunch of rigs now. We we were tapped out basically on frack fleets. So, you know, Liberty Energy and others are, 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 are reactivating, adding frack fleets back. But we're sort of just getting to that point. And and quite frankly, you know, I was on David Ramson Woods podcast earlier this week. And, um, you know, he is, is negative on the, you know, the crude oil production thesis and outlook. And and I'm not. I, it's very, very hard to look at the map and see how many wells are being drilled and talk to every operator and, you know, be in this business as, as you are and see how much activity is going on and then not expect production to go up. And it, it doesn't go up immediately. But, you know, if New Mexico is producing 1.5 million barrels a day and that's two counties in New Mexico, that's Lee and Eddy County are producing 1.5 million barrels per day. We've got some good. Well, we this is not a you know, production problem. And, and the more I'm talking to operators on the private side, even on the public side, I'm going to have Aaron Hunter with ConocoPhillips back on the podcast. And I think these wells look pretty good. And that's what we're, that's what we're hearing from operators as well. So you can see things like where Gulf of Mexico will pull down production. It's taking us a while to get back to where we were. But, you know, there's a risk that we are actually going to be adding production pretty, not, not not say strong, like a million barrels a day on the market, but we're incrementally adding production as, as the global economy is softening and demand is softening. And I think that's where... It, you know, it's sort of like when people say, well, everybody's hiring, so we're still in a good spot. It takes a while. And so demand will de demand will lag. And already in the U.S., we're seeing, you know, real concerns on gasoline demand. Not that it's cratered by any means, but we peaked in December of last year. And it's really kind of steadily come down on total, you know, product demand in the U.S. And that, that's something, you know, really important to watch is that as the economy slows, you, you just consume less diesel. And this oil has been very expensive on the backdrop of very expensive everything else. And that's uh, incredibly important is inflation and high oil prices. This has not been seen together, um, including for most executives who I respect a lot, but they're, you know, they haven't seen it either. Yeah. And we didn't, we see the EEA put out numbers saying that crude inventories, inventories have also grown as of last week, I think the 29th of July. When you look at it across the board, it's not really a huge increase, but right. it is a nominal amount. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting what you're saying because that that's part of my confusion and what my confusion has been looking 
at some of these companies and going, well, why aren't your fears more significant around the impact of a recession? And, you know, good context is operating in this price environment. I mean, you can make money anywhere down to $40 a barrel. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you start to trim margins, but it, it doesn't really break the bank. Well, yeah, and I think there's also there's also a healthy benefit to to prices cooling off. I mean, it's beneficial for the consumer. It's beneficial for the industry for for the the craziness and the inflation to cool off. And and it's multifold. I mean, as a as a public CEO, you don't want to come out and say, you know, hey, we're going to recession and prices are going down. Like, so you you can't do that. You're not going to do yeah. that. That makes total sense. Um, but it's like, you know, some for some companies may may really be, you know, the bullish thesis is like, OK, how what's the level of bullishness? Right. Is it if you're comfortable, seventy five dollar oil? I mean, you should be running these these risk scenarios. So that that's pretty I mean, that's I think it's it's really relevant. And it's also it's it's confusing of the supply demand dynamics are really confusing because to your point on inventory levels, if you're looking at the EIA data and you saw that we had a modest you know build on a few things that spooked the market in a way that the trend of uh, it, the overall, you know, refined product demand, you know, kind of cooling off over time, really the month of July is a hot driving month. And yet that we also had very high oil prices. And so we saw that cool off. And most folks that do oil and gas are analyzing that in inventories, aren't looking at Walmart and studying all these other things. And so I think there, you know, it, there's why this is such a unique time is there's a bit of a mismatch mismatch there and you have to really look at all these factors and so that inventory though is also the reason you get a lot of folks pointing the very bullish thesis is that look at you know the SBR we are at 19 you know for strategic petroleum reserves we've sold off so much we're at 1985 lows so we have so many there's so many correlations you know they were correlations to 2007 2008 you know, consumer sentiment is is off to 1970 lows. We're we are almost now pre 1970 lows. So when you think about the 1970s, the 1980s, and you look at you know high inflation and Volcker and having to raise rates, you know we had high inflation, then rates you know interest rates were rose aggressively, and then two years later in 1982 we peaked unemployment at like 13 percent or 11 or 12 percent. Sorry, and so it that that's that lagging factor and demand oil demand sort of works with that, and I think there's where people are. Uh, it's a little harder to interpret when you're already seeing a little bit. And the reason you're already seeing a little bit of that cooling in demand is because those consumers are trying to buy groceries and they're trying to heat their home and natural gas prices probably aren't going to cool off. And so $8 in MCF, we've seen, you know, nearly 14%, you know, price increases in electricity from an inflationary standpoint. And that is really, really hurting folks. You know, we haven't seen the, you know, the 500 pounds a month that we're, they're seeing in the UK, um, but we're seeing obviously increases and it, that's such a big deal to the consumer. And that's why I say it's going to really break you know, it's really going to break Europe. We're seeing businesses, you know, within Europe who have several thousand dollars a month in electricity bills. Um, and, you know, the European Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz has talked about, you know, we'll have these slight increases and, of electricity bills. And, and, and people like, we've already seen them. They're, they're insane. And they can't afford it. So uh, th that's just going to be something. And if that was to happen in America, I think the wheels come off a bit. You know, I, d I don't think the American consumer could swallow a $500 a month on average, $500 a month electricity bill. Um, I think that's it, it's no just an insane number. And the fact that they're going to have to be cool, you know, curbing actual their consumption uh, because they don't have enough. They don't actually have enough natural gas. Um, that's we aren't experiencing that. We will have enough natural gas. Um, but, yeah, we have some you know, the inventory level. So there's a, there's a myriad of factors that you have to look at all together. Um, and it makes this extraordinarily complex and hard to just say it's going one direction and I'm comfortable with this. But overall, the, there's more factors uh, on the negative side for demand and the global economy than there are on the positive. That's basically my next question is, 
Are you bullish on Bayrish? When we I'm... talk about inventories. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Continue. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. So when we talk about inventories, I do want to touch on Saudi because you mentioned the 100,000 barrel increase, which is really negligible. I mean, it's one of the smallest increases they've ever done. So people who are making a fuss about it, let's keep perspective. I thought what was interesting was when they raised prices. And I wanted to get your input on that and whether you think that's a signal that they actually don't have the spare production capacity. Uh, you know, I'm ju- and I was just looking back at, at um, Saudi production. Um, you know, they're about 10, 10 and a half million barrels per day. And we'll see the updated number when OPEC report comes out. I think that, and they're, they, they're, they're enjoying some a lot of flexibility of you know saying things to the market. You know they haven't been super vocal as you've noticed. Like we're not seeing a ton of stuff. They don't have to come out because they don't have to do much. I mean, hundred dollar oil. This is great for them. Everybody's recovered their their you know coffers and and you know from a fiscal side, everybody all these oil countries are, are doing pretty well. There's some complexities. I mean, Iraq is gets a lot of its uh, natural gas from Iran. They're not getting it, so they're having black and brown out. So big problems there, even if they're producing a ton of oil. But I think for the Saudis, um, you want, for one, you're 100% right. That 100,000 barrel day increase is pretty negligible. That's why the market you know, responded, I think, you know, accurately the way they did. Um, however, then they're sort of like, oh, well, do we really need it anyway? And I think that's what, that's what the Saudis are looking at. Of They're producing 10.5 million barrels a day. So if there has to be a cut, you know, they will have to they will have to cut. And um, so that you want to ramp it up to a level that you can actually cut from. So there, there's that. Spare capacity, it's a little hard. If you're looking at, um, if you look at the recount, the Saudi recount and the UAE recount, and then you look back at production and you just line up those charts, um, and you can you know Google them and find these online, you'll notice one thing really quickly. Production and rigs don't correlate perfectly. You know, there is a, yes, there's a, there's a rig height and, and production height, but the rig count doesn't equate to 10 and a half million barrels a day. So the Saudis have been able to add production back without, with, with a, a fraction of the rigs that they had prior. So they, you know, it's, it's very different than U.S. shale. Like it, the, there's a lot of different factors going into that, but it's just something people have to appreciate of, yes, are they, you know, are they selling it from stockpiling? Is there, you know, different production being brought online? There's a number of things going on in that department. And I would love to have, you know, some folks from Oxford and super energy studies and others on the podcast to really get into the Saudi production and where it's coming from. Um, but I am, you know, the reason I'm, I'm always a little bit more um, optimistic, I think, on spare capacity than, than some others is that this industry is just really resilient. And so when you sort of are asking for it, you know, yes, it, I mean, they're controlling that production, but it usually comes. I mean, also oil prices came down because Libyan output went up. And we'll see that. I'm sure we'll see that in monthly data when the when the OPEC report comes out. And so Libya's this wild card it goes up, goes down. It's all over the map. And you would say, well, well, how does it do that? And it's like, well, it's very politically driven. So you if you look at Libyan oil production, you can be at a million over a million barrels a day to 200,000 barrels a day in a heartbeat. That's pretty big for um, uh, the global oil market in a good day. It's really hard for the market to swallow that when demand's coming down and then you have this erratic supply. So I think they're balancing, you know, they, they have these factors of balance. Obviously, they don't, they're not going to talk about them so much because they don't want them to be a big deal. Um, and then it's, it's and Nigeria's the same way, um, the up and down on that, sort of like when you're looking at U.S. production and you see Gulf of Mexico being down by 300,000 barrels a day, you know, that pulls the whole growth story down. Um, so yeah, it's, it's um, I, I'm not as worried. I mean, they're nearly 30 million barrels a day for for supply. Um, adding output in a softening global economy, um, we're probably okay. Unless the wild card is going to be Russia, and I think for many ways it's it's that how much are they going to export? Right? It's the 
obviously we know the Russian economy is backsliding, so I'm you know certain that their demand is sliding. But you know they're also not efficient. When you produce that much oil, you're not extremely efficient in your your consumption and your use. But you you have to prioritize producing it, and there's a lot of reasons that Russia should and and probably will prioritize production. And you know we had pretty alarming fears a couple months ago about production coming off in Russia. Prices were moving up on, on the back of those thoughts. Then June data came out and production was higher in Russia. That helps, you know, keep a lid on prices. Um, so it's really about, are they going to maintain their output levels? They're well over, they're about 10 and a half million barrels a day, but they, the most serious thing is they maintained exports and they've increased, you know, uh, they've obviously increased um, flows on water, you know, waterborne exports, mm-hmm. you know, India's consuming or, or buying over a million barrels a day of, of crude and, you know, Italy is buying over a million or like half a million barrels a day as well. So you're seeing a lot of this go up and you haven't seen any curtailment in pipeline flows of crude from Russia to Europe. So that's all like, that's the wild card of, you know, does all that get main, maintained? And I would say that if, if you're, they're prioritizing their economy, it, they should. I'm not saying that's a given. Any any war scenario, you know, things get really tricky um, and it requires people to focus in leadership. But I also think you're getting money for that. It's You have jobs with that. It's keeping people busy. There's a lot of reasons why you would maintain that. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, I appreciate it. And it all kind of ties together for me. You know, we know that Saudi crude oftentimes goes to India and China, similar to Russian crude. Can you help me? I haven't even looked at the price of Russian euros in a while. It's been a second. Is there any situation in which that discounted Russian crude heading to India and China somehow impacts Saudi and their ability to maintain their price. Um, so I think it, you know, it already has in a lot of ways, and it is, it is. That's the other really interesting piece and political balancing act I think the Saudis have had is, and something that we, you know, from a geopolitical but also from an oil standpoint, really have to appreciate is the is the interwoven relationship that and I think we've talked about this before, Gabby, of you know China and Russia and that relationship, but also now the Saudis and their relationship with China and that that interwoven and, and this this comfort level and you know Iran and, and and Saudi Arabia don't really get along, but Iran and China get along really well, and you know China is purchasing over a million and a half barrels a day, you know, from Iran and really supporting that economy and really enabling it very similar to what they're doing now with, with Russia. Um, so, but the Saudis, they are being impacted by this discounted Russian crude going into their, you know, places that they were sending this crude. So they're certainly being impacted by that, but also their prices are high. People are demanding this. So demand levels have been good. So they can sort of look through it, I think in a little bit in some ways. And interestingly enough, they're actually burning Russian fuel oil so the Saudis burn about a million barrels a day during the summer months um, of crude oil just for power. And um, that was, you know, if you remember back in September when we, we saw the first oil price spike well before the war in Ukraine, it was because of p- the power switching, right, where people were taking their natural gas, you know, power um, power plants and they were burning diesel with them. And that's what drove that initial demand. And we saw $80 oil. Um the Saudis do this every summer. They take, they burn about a million barrels a day of crude in the power sector because it's really hot. They are using discounted. They're buying Russian fuel oil and they're at a severe discount, and they're burning that instead. And then they're able to maintain their exports. Really? So, yes. Um, so you think about that. That's a million barrels a day, probably over the course of three months, an extra million barrels a day that they have that they can sort of put out there. And that's where I think the um, sometimes that. I, and I fully believe they fudged their numbers, you know, the production figures, you know, we never get to see them. We don't know what a decline curve their the wells look like. So, yeah, they can do that. But I, I thought that was a, a good it's a good little anecdote to realize of, you know, the interwoven like connections that 
that pe what people are doing on the market with, with this discounted crude. And it's about a 35, I mean, they maintain that Russian Urals, you know, is about a $35 discount to Brent. So you're looking at, I mean, if you're a hundred bucks, you're looking at, at um, I mean, now that we're $95, if you're thinking, okay, there is a point, and I think you were almost getting to that question or alluding to that and where my brain went is, it, where it gets too low, right? Is that prices go down or like we go to $80 Brent and then that, okay, that's minus 35. I think something to point out is the Russian fiscal break even pre-war in Ukraine was was about 40, low 40s. Um, so they can, they their, their fiscal budget breaks even at about $40 a barrel, maybe $45 a barrel. That's really low. That's not how the Saudis, their fiscal budget is extremely, you know, is, is much, much higher. Um, obviously, yeah. the crude, the, the break even to produce it is, is, you know, $4 to $10 a barrel. It's very cheap. Um, but the actual fiscal side is a lot harder. And I think that's important to realize for the Russians is that they can withstand and have proven from 2014 to now that they can withstand lots of sanctions and lower crude prices and still be alive. I know it's hard for people to get, you know, wrap their arms around. Yeah, but especially they, when China and India is supporting them. They're kind of like, all right, well. Exactly. See ya. Exactly. So Even, long. Yep. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. And with that moving into China, let's touch on China, like you talked about. Wonderful. I am not an expert on China by any means. I am deeply concerned about everything happening in Taiwan. And I want to get your thoughts on it as someone who I consider an expert on China. What do you play out in your head as a possible scenario? What keeps you up at night? How do you think that's going to impact markets in general? Should should uh, all my I, doomsday fears be validated, or do you... <laughs> I, it's it's as you know, I think, and you you can jump in and ask more, you, and you should um sort of pivot and ask more questions on it, um clarify because it's again one of these really you know um if you're to pick the big chunks of things to follow right now. You know, the biggest things in the world that sort of, I would say, U.S. supply is a really big deal. You know, geopolitical, like the, you know, the, the entrenched war in Ukraine, you know, really the the price of natural gas um, within Europe, the inability to get natural gas, the impact on fertilizers, the food and energy crisis that we now have in, in Africa, we have it in the Middle East, you know, it's going to make Arab Spring look like kittens and daisies have popped out something. I mean, it's, it's going to make that look like nothing, what we're about to experience and what we are beginning to experience. Um, and then you have this uh, this backdrop is all this China thing, which is, I think it's not getting a lot of love and attention because it's hard. It's not on the forefront of, of the people's minds. So you don't hear about it if you're, you know, Bloomberg and CNBC on a daily basis. I mean, you do if you're watching the Bloomberg open at night, you're the Asian open at night, and you obviously the Taiwan thing, the, the stock, stock market, you know, the Asian market crashed, um, didn't crash. I mean, it came down considerably. So what happened was Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House, um, she is the highest ranking U.S. you know official to visit um, China as like in office, right? In the basically 25 years, or sorry, to visit Taiwan. Um, and we've sort of not. Lots of Western countries have basically you know taken the backseat on this and and done what China wants and and not recognize full out recognize Taiwan. I mean, you've seen in in Europe, Lithuania. Actually, reckon, instead of calling it a, a ambassador's office, Taipei, they called it they called it Taiwan. This made China pissed, and so China actually stopped tra you know trading that. with them. This is impact supply chains in, in Germany and everything. So this thing is Taiwan is a really big deal, and it's not something it's not something simple. It's very like you know Hong Kong was taken over during COVID, right? They basically you know they were China plans to reunify all these. Um, all these places, right? Territorial and Taiwan and Hong Kong were, were two big pillars of that. They did Hong Kong very easily, probably easier than they even expected because they were able to use COVID and they were able to use a lot of controls and they were able to just sort of, I wouldn't say not without shots fired because 
because they definitely fired shots in those protests. But democracy is over. Like Hong Kong's done. They, they have it. Um, and Taiwan is sort of the, the big thing that you can look back to from Mao Zedong to now of the, the wanting to reunify Taiwan with the motherland. It's a really big deal. And what's more important, though, and then not more important, but that's sort of the backdrop of that's been going on. You have, you know, increasing hawkishness out of China. We've seen that for the last, you know, 10, 20 years, which which is not something new. It's just a, you know, movement in sort of the strategic, you know, aims and, and aggressions. And it's natural that they really do want Taiwan. And, and I think we're seeing that it's serious. The real seriousness that the market has to realize, that business leaders have to realize, is that every single business in the world can be impacted by this. And that's because Taiwan produces all the semiconductors. And I say all, like, but it's like China producing eighty percent of the world's solar panels yeah. and eighty percent of battles. They produce the the majority. They have one company actually. This you know the Taiwan Semiconductor Company that produces most of it. And these are high you know high end semiconductors, low end semiconductors. Like this is for our you know for our the Mac that I'm using right now to record. This is for your phones. This is for everything. So if you can think about you know the impact of supply chains, it's really big. Even even right now you're seeing so you're seeing a lot of military activity that China. When Nancy Pelosi said she was going, they said, no, don't go. Um, and she went anyway. And she touched down. She was only in Taiwan for an evening. Um, and she made some very, you know, she made some very clear statements of saying, you know, we're we're friends with Taiwan um, and we support this democracy. And that really has pissed off China in a lot of ways because China is not a democracy. And I was listening to BBC this morning before we jumped on this. And uh, there's uh, some folks in China that were on BBC getting interviewed and they were saying, we are a democracy with Chinese characteristics. You know, that's ridiculous to say we're not a democracy. And it's ridiculous to listen to this person say they're, you know, China is a democracy. But it's, it's just a... Um, the reason it's extraordinarily complex right now is because they're doing, if you, they put out a map, like the, the Chinese military in, in China put out a map that you can Google and you can see they're, they, um, basically they're surrounding Taiwan and they're doing a bunch of military exercises. And so you, you're not shipping around there now. There's no flights around there. And that's exactly what they want, right? So you don't even have to take over Taiwan to cause massive problems within the global economy and show the world, you know, that you can screw this up, right? That you, you will if you mess with this and they made that really clear all the statements from china all their official speaking are saying if you want a peaceful like if you want peace then don't do anything with taiwan and they're saying well that's not you know that's not fair like you can't just take it over and they're saying nope this is this is if, if we want a you know peace in the waters and you want to you know maintain the status quo then leave it be and I think that this has been going on that obviously that, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the Biden administration. I think anyone who's listened to my podcast knows that largely from an economic and, and energy standpoint. Um, but I would say there's definitely something in the backdrop going on with China that's, that's been going on for a while. It's a rollover from Trump and Pompeo. And yeah. I mean, Pompeo, even this had massive bipartisan support. Pompeo offered to even go go with Nancy Pelosi, which is like, oh, my gosh, these are these are not, you know, you know, people that you would you would think would be enjoying themselves together, together in a room. Um, yeah. But I think she even responded positively to that. Um, she even responded. She wasn't she didn't like poo poo him or say, oh, you horrible Republican. You know, it was so this has been a there's a lot of bipartisan support around that. And that's also really scary to, to China because we do have midterm elections coming. That's, you know, there's definitely a reason that that um, Nancy Pelosi did this. And I think, you know, shoring up support before the midterms is a, is a big deal. Maybe taking that the world isn't completely focused on the singular issues that everyone seems to be focused on. So it's, I think that's a big deal. And, and I know China sees that also as a big deal is that, look, if you're if you get momentum on this and China's a very bipartisan issue, and if you get people educated and you get momentum on this of 
what China is actually doing, you're going to have support within Congress um, to be tougher on China. And, you know, you could have obviously have a flip in the midterms where people, if it becomes a little more red, it's going to be more hawkish on China. Um, and then you you change in a couple of years, you change who's in the White House. That's going to be a game changer. And I think that it, China isn't changing anything they're doing. They're just they're just doing it right. The, reunifying Hong Kong with a mother or Taiwan with motherland is something they've wanted to do. And just conceptually thinking about that, that's a really, really big deal. Um, they basically need to complete that with the next 30 years for their their 100 year rejuvenation goals. That's a it's a critical part of national rejuvenation is reunifying Hong Kong with motherland and Hong Kong produces all the world's chips. So that's why you hear in Congress these chip you know, acts in these builds of all this reshoring of, of producing stuff in America. It's something that we need to be doing aggressively um, and doing very, very quickly. And it's also something that we have to realize that, you know, with our Asian allies, um, which many are, are very much on the fence of, of whether or not they're allies or not, of producing this stuff, but producing, you know, chips in other countries, especially in the U.S. or in democratic countries, that's a really big deal. Um, and I think, and you need a lot of energy to do this as well. So something that a lot of people are not thinking about is, is Taiwan needs natural gas to produce their, these chips. And by screwing up that, you know, by doing military exercises in and around and above, and above this country, they will stop you know, flows of natural gas into their country. Um, and I think that's a big, that's also a really big deal of like how critical energy is in all this and something people aren't um, directly paying attention to, let alone, you know, Chinese coal consumption, Chinese coal output, which is, has me pretty alarmed from a military standpoint as well. Why does Chinese coal output have you alarmed from a military standpoint? Talk to me more about that. Because I think, you know, that um, you're, they've increased output by 100 million tons in five years. So they're, they're nearing the sort of 400, um, million ton mark. And I mean, it's a lot of coal. They've, they've ratcheted up. If you yeah. look at Chinese raw coal production, they've really ratcheted up in the past five years. And uh, you don't do that unless you like, that's domestic energy security, right? And it's everybody and they've, you can read all, you know, Chinese texts and literature that's been going on. Everybody wants food and energy security, but you really want food and energy security if you want to insulate yourself and you want to be able to do things like take over Taiwan or, you know, have territorial disputes or you think the world's going to cut you off or sanction you. If you have all this coal, you have a domestic, you have, you have power supply, power security, domestic power security. And I think that's just, it's critically important to think about why, how important domestic power um, security is. Like your the ability to have coal and not be reliant on natural gas imports or um, they're reliant on crude oil imports, but they get a vast majority of their crude from very friendly countries to them, from, from Russia, yeah, from Iran, Russia. from Saudi Iran. Arabia. So all these countries that they, they can, yes, they have to get it through the waters and everything, but they, they're good with this and they're getting increasing supplies of natural gas via pipe um, from Russia as well. So I think um, that, that coal output, the dramatic, you know, strength of that production. One, it shows the, the climate stuff that they're talking about, which they actually said today as part of the response with the U.S., you know, to, with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan was that they're not talking with us on climate change anymore, which sh I mean, newsflash to everyone. Um, yeah, it does shock. not matter. It, um, shocking. Even and it when they were matter. talking about it, they were still increasing their coal production. Right. And they the were only just reason they do anything to do with renewables is because they want to cap the market, they want to have the market on renewables, and that has nothing to do with them wanting to go green. Yes, so I think that the whole, like, it, it's interesting, because they've used that as a, and it's a great it's a great card to play with Europe, because they buy so much of their wind, and, and they buy so many of the winter rains and so much of the, the, the solar and the polysilicon. But when it comes to actually, like, when they're saying, hey, we're not going to talk to you on climate change, and it's like, they were never serious about it in the first place, but it is a card that they're playing. It's something people really should recognize of, of how, you how used climate has been for China, how big a piece mm -hmm. energy is. And and I think the energy piece is this is where it just 
when you're looking at domestic energy security, it, there to have to have grid reliability and power reliability, and it, it makes me very very concerned about you know the U.S. trying to go to a, a, a green grid by 2035. That's ridiculously soon, and to have you know that's all renewables yeah. in the grid. You would have a you you have a you don't have redundancy. You don't have a stable grid. You have it. We will yeah. have energy security issues and the cost of it. And so that's the, the opposite of what China is doing is having an extremely a redundant and very very stable grid. And um, that, if, if you think about the impact to your economy and your people and the ability to mess with countries, um, you mess with energy. And this is something that they're doing. Obviously, they can do with Taiwan, um, and they can like for the fact that we won't be able to. You know, we won't be able to curtail their power because they have all this domestic coal production, and that's really, really important is that something they can control. And you want to control that if you're thinking about becoming more aggressive, if you're, if you're going to be more aggressive. And, and I say this a lot is that it's not about thinking about it. this is a trajectory that China's been on for a while. It's just taken a lot of folks um, around the world to sort of realize that they're not friendly. This isn't this isn't a country that, you know, wants to have a they say they want a peaceful rise, but this is the rise and it's not going to always be peaceful. It just, it, it's just the reality of it. And we have to take that, um, we have to take that really seriously. And it does get very intertwined and interwoven with business, with risk analysis and with, uh, with energy security. Absolutely. Well, that feels like maybe a good place to, to stop and then we can revisit and do another one of these and check in on any developments happening with Taiwan and what China has done in the coming weeks. A absolutely no that was fantastic thank you so much for the excellent questions and the commentary and um oh, thank and, you, you know, I, I i feel like now i have so much, every time we speak i have so much more to think about and dive in on and then i want to talk to you again and yeah it is anytime i speak with you i learn tenfold what I do well that's awesome else. i really appreciate that that was great and we will absolutely have you back and we will be doing it again soon so thank you so much folks talk to you soon bye